0: I went through a program called Living Waters, and it's roughly a 20-week intensive program. And that really made a big difference. I was actually at church during one of our prayer nights, and I was at the point where I felt kind of numb. I'm back in routine, just doing the same old mundane stuff. I'm not really feeling God pushing or working in my life is just going through day-to-day stuff and I was like I need God to to do something because I'm tired of being stuck in this rut and two of my friends that were praying for me they were like you need to go to this program I think it'll really help you and so I ended up signing up for that but when I went I was like I've already forgiven my dad And I was sitting there with that mindset, like, I've already done that. Why am I here? I think it was like the third day I was in there. It's like, I'm not here to forgive my dad. I'm here to forgive myself.
1: Thank you for stopping by my podcast, Finding God in Our Pain. Welcome. Hi, I'm your host, Sherry Pilkington. In this podcast, you'll hear firsthand stories of how the God of the Holy Bible meets real people in their real pain. We look at the good God we profess through the lens of pain and suffering. I'm processing the most painful season of my life after unexpectedly losing Larry, my husband of 32 years. In my journey, I've discovered that there are many types of deaths. Maybe you've asked God. How could you let this happen? Why me? Where are you, God? Do you even care? What am I supposed to do with my life now? Here at Finding God in Our Pain, we don't shy away from the tough questions. I ask them to my guests. I share what I've experienced. We give real examples of how God shows up in the darkest, most painful situations in life. May the stories that you hear and the advice you receive encourage you to engage the heart of God about your painful places or memories or experiences or even your unmet expectations. Lean in close to God's heart because he speaks beautiful things in the dark. My guest and friend, Tina Ivey, is here today allowing me to ask questions about her personal trauma of domestic and sexual abuse. Tina has not only survived sexual abuse by her father, but she's excelled beyond merely surviving and is living a life that is full, busy, and rewarding. And I personally feel that one of the strongest markers for a life of thrive or thriving is to live in peace, contentment, and forgiveness. And that describes Tina. In this episode, we talk about why victims do not speak out. And what is something that the average person can look for in order to help someone who's experiencing sexual abuse? Tina shares her foster care experience that included a neighbor girl who was a bully. And then she also shares how she and that girl, they were women at the time they grew up, crossed paths and how God challenged Tina's ability to forgive. I asked Tina about forgiveness in three areas, her father, God, and herself. And like so many abuse victims, she withheld forgiveness from herself the longest. She shared about her regrets and the healing process that took place as she wrote her book titled Better Than I Should Be, Overcoming Sexual and Domestic Abuse Through Forgiveness and Personal Healing. The book became available for purchase on December 20th of 2023, so it's available now. And we didn't get to discuss all that Tina's book reveals, so the purchase link will be in the show notes if you'd like to read more about her journey. She had the the proverbial cards of life stacked against her since she was a tiny girl, but God does amazing things with simple childlike faith. And real quick before we get started, when I was looking at the transcript, there is a part of our conversation where Tina refers to JC, and we did not share who that is. JC is Tina's daughter. So let's get into this. Let's listen to this small glimpse into Tina's journey through sexual abuse and her steadfast faith in believing that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he'll do. What a pleasure it is to have you, Tina. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. First, I want to say thank you for your willingness to be vulnerable with a very personal trauma and a very difficult conversation to have. You've even published a book titled Better Than I Should Be. And you know my heart on this, and I say this all the time. Anytime someone stands up with a personal story of trauma or pain and suffering and they testify from a healed place on how God held them and guided them through, it's a story that's part of your redemption that God has for those who suffer. And by redemption, it's the part where your pain wasn't wasted. It wasn't in vain. You can help somebody else. So, your courage to take the topic of domestic and sexual abuse into the light is going to be the confirmation for someone else to take action in their own life and to either start or continue the process of going from being a victim to being an overcomer. So, again, I just want to say thank you so much thank you for having me. Your abuse came at the hands of your father. Can you tell us, give us a glimpse of what your life was like as a child? Did you? have what might be considered a typical family if even from the outside looking in? Did you or do you have good early childhood memories?
0: I actually do. When I was younger, uh, a lot of my memories are like on Fridays. My parents would take us out to the movies and my dad was very active and my brother's baseball. So we were kind of active in the community and, and did stuff. So to me, everything was Pretty much normal. It was just kind of the home stuff, you know, being that young. I didn't really understand a lot of the stuff that was going on. But as far as
1: outward, everything seemed normal. And you would have thought you had a normal childhood.
0: I I would say that I had a normal childhood childhood. from what most other people would think. People looking from the outside, you know, at us would think that we're just a typical family.
1: I found out as I got older, I found out later that there was some abuse in other homes as children. I never knew that was going on. It's very well hidden. Yeah. Once somebody decides to work on healing, it's not an easy road. It will cost them even more. I think maybe, I don't know, to fight their way out. And I say fight because if you go for therapy, it might take a while to find the right one, the right therapist. If you need medication, it might take a while to find the right one or the combination that works best for you. Not to mention the pushback that can come from family members and society, et cetera, et cetera. What was your biggest hurdle or challenge or maybe even block to making the breakthrough in this journey from victim to fighter to victor? I
0: think my move away from where I was living and getting away from being in that atmosphere or in that place was probably the biggest that that was my hurdle it's like being there I was stuck I felt like I was stuck in like old habits and old relationships that just weren't going anywhere and you know those in and of themselves had abusive things with that so it's It wasn't until I was able to get away from there that I was able to come here where I am now and, you know, get really immersed in church and surround myself with people that wanted the best for me. And yeah, so I I think location was a a big hurdle for me because I felt like I was kind of stuck.
1: So changing that access and that routine and that pattern can be powerful anytime you break interrupt any sort of pattern. It can definitely help with changing if that's what needs to be done. So after these childhood memories, you had a good childhood. At what point did the sexual abuse begin with your father?
0: The really first memory that I have was six or seven. And I know my mom and my grandmother had were taken my uncle to was in college, so they had to take him over to the next county over. And I was home with my dad and my brother. And so really, that's the first time that
1: I ever remember anything happening. So from six or seven, so you were very little. It's interesting that you can still have, I think about how good and evil dwells together. And so in one moment, you can still have joy, even in the midst, you've got something hanging over your head, over your heart, but you can still move about. I guess that maybe that's one of the beautiful things God's done for us, despite the fact that evil is present, we can still find moments of joy and happiness. So here you are with a good childhood memories. And you've you've said to me, because we're friends, that your father was not a mean man.
0: Yeah, it wasn't malicious or, you know, he wasn't like, physically abusive to the point where he beat me and he didn't like it wasn't really verbal abusive where he would yell at me scream at me and stuff like that he was really nice (laughs) to me so I know that sounds kind of weird and people might think you know it may not be the typical story of abuse but this this is my experience
1: of how I'm sure you're speaking to somebody today that that's been their experience. In my opinion, it would add a lot of confusion to the situation, the confusion to whether or not you are abused versus this is something that a father and daughter do to show their love or their affection. At what point did you discern that it was abuse?
0: not really sure. I know it just didn't feel right from that first time that I remember. I, I know it just didn't feel right because my dad would like send my brother out. It's kind of like you're hiding something. So if you're hiding something, then usually you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. So I think uh, the way it was found out, um, evidently I was um, playing with some kids in the neighborhood, um, some boys, because that's mostly what we had. And I would go with my brother down to their house. And evidently I said something or I did something that made the parent question whether or not I was being abused. So that's how the whole thing got started with it coming out when I was younger. I don't really know if I knew at that point that it was something major, something wrong. But when the police ended up coming to the house, then I knew at that point that evidently it was something bad that that was happening so how old were you then I was nine around nine so it was from like age eight to ten is when we were in court and when uh, I ended up with a foster family I think I was nine years old when I ended up with them it was close to my 10th birthday so the dates and times get kind of skewed there but it was around that age
1: did you have a good experience in foster care? Because sometimes that can be even more trauma.
0: My foster family, I love my foster family. I They were church-going people. So every time the doors were open, we were at church. But there was a girl that lived next door. She was 10 days younger than me. And I guess because of the situation and knowing that I was a foster kid. She was the my first time ever being bullied. So as far as my foster family, that was great. But some of the stuff that I was getting from the little girl next door wasn't so great. But she did that summer. They were getting in-ground pool. So, you know, we used to go out there and look at all the frogs because, you know, they got a big hole and all these frogs were in there. and But once they got the pool done... I didn't know how to swim. Evidently, they knew how to swim because they had been going to the pool forever. Me, this was pretty much my first time ever really getting in a pool. And so I had to wear the little floaties on my arms. And she tried to take them off of me while I was in the deep end. God brought that full circle for me with her because I've always had this place where it's like, I just don't like her. And I'm like, I know I'm not supposed to harbor these feelings. Towards anybody like get over yourself. That's that's what I tried to tell myself. And I'm like, I just I, I
1: don't like her, <laughs> you know. That's and, part of trauma, I think.
0: Yeah, and so JC was like your daughter, yeah, was like five or six, and she was in brownies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, this girl, now a lady, ended up being her troop leader. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> yes. Oh. So for Christmas that year, um, when they were getting in the truck and everything and, and getting ready, she didn't have a jacket. And she was going to be riding in the truck with them. And I had just bought a jacket. My first time wearing that jacket. And I was like, here, you can have my jacket. And I gave my jacket to her. And I didn't get it back. I didn't ask
1: for it back. I told her she could have it. I tried
0: to make it a better situation and not harbor those feelings towards her.
1: But those are a process too, because that's part of the trauma, especially your first taste of being bullied. And it sounds like she was super cruel. The fact that you can remember she was 10 days older than you.
0: Well, she, she she pointed that out to me. She said I was 10 days more rotten than her.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So that's why I remember her birthday
1: and mm. everything. The enemy is cruel like that. But you know what, though? There you were in that pinch. In my opinion, you were being tested. God's still going to forgive you if you'd have failed, but the fact that you gave her this brand new jacket. And you know, I'd have been thinking, Lord, you bought this jacket for her, didn't you? I thought I was buying it for me, but you bought it for her. I I did not see that coming. You got me. So God is gracious in that way, in that you were in a safe environment, yet the girl next door is a pill. But we have all those in school and... Wherever you go, there's always one, but you have to remember to, but not as a kid. I wouldn't have remembered this as a kid, but I think about the way she treated you. She's hearing things at home that talk to her that way too, you know, that treat her that way and make her think that way and view people that way. So I guess that's one of the reasons God asks us to give people grace because we never know what they're going through, but he does. How long did it take you to write that book?
0: 15 years.
1: 15 years. What was the delay?
0: healing actually going through the whole healing process it was really hard to write to go back and put myself in those places to remember that stuff I would go through and write maybe three or four pages and then I'd have to step away so that's why it took so long and then I'd go where I wouldn't write anything for a year or two I would put it on the back burner but it's always been there like I would have uh, a background, a wallpaper on my computer that said, you know, you need to finish your novel now or something like that, just something to keep it in my brain. But there were times that I would go maybe a year or two and not do anything with it because I just sometimes I just didn't want to deal with it. And sometimes I was dealing with other stuff, but I felt bad. About it because I was like, I know I'm supposed to get this book out. I know I'm supposed to write it. And why is it taking me so long? And then when I started going through some of the healing processes over the years, I'm like, okay, well, I couldn't have written this unless I had walked through this healing part of it. So it just takes a while sometimes. You know, our timeline and God's timeline are (laughs) two different things.
1: I was thinking. As you were saying, it took 15 years. I was going to ask you, do you believe it's a better message after waiting the 15 years? And it sounds like you do feel that that is the case.
0: Yeah, definitely feel that way because there's some, some things that I had to experience to even be able to finish the book.
1: What are some of the major parts of your healing? What are some of the breakthroughs that you had that brought you into a new level of healing? And when I say that, what I'm asking is like, what did you do for treatment? What did you do for healing? What does that look like for your process?
0: I went through a program called Living Waters, and it's roughly a 20-week intensive program. And that really made a big difference. I was actually at church during one of our prayer nights, and I was at the point where I felt kind of numb. I'm back in routine, just doing same old mundane stuff. I'm not really feeling God pushing or working in my life. It's just going through day-to-day stuff, and I was like, I need God to, to do something because I'm tired of being stuck in this rut, and Of my friends that were praying for me, they were like, You need to go to this program, I think it'll really help you. And so, I ended up signing up for that. But when I went, I was like, I've already forgiven my dad, and I was sitting there with that mindset, like, I've already done that. Why am I here? I think it was like the third day I was in there. It's like, I'm not here to forgive my dad, I'm here to. Forgive myself. And that was in my face, like, oh, what do I need to forgive myself for? And it's some of the things that I put myself through trying to find healing in other ways than through with God. Throughout that whole course, there were some things that stuck out to me. And there's one particular night that we were there. It's a very small group, maybe like four or five people, maybe a little more than that but no more than like eight people. And this day uh, I shared um, what I was thinking and stuff. And the leader, she gave me a verse that she said that God had given her that week for me. And then she started praying over me and they were talking about how they saw me with armor on and that I had been in battle most of my life and that It was to the point where the armor was so dented and caved in on me that it was hard for me to breathe. And it was time for me to get rid of that armor and trade it for a robe of peace. Hmm. And my response to that is, what does that even look like? You know, I'm like, I don't know what peace is because I feel like I've been fighting my whole life just to stay above, make sure my kids were good, just trying to make it through life. Yeah. And so it was pretty much like in survival mode. But when they said that, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take that. I don't know what it looks like. <laughs> and it wasn't, and this was probably five or six years ago when they told me this. Mm. And it wasn't until earlier this year that I realized I've been walking in this peace (laughs) and I never really realized that I had it. That's just how good God is. It's just like, you can be one way this minute. And the next thing you know, you're already a year or two in, in peace. And it's just like, oh, wow. I didn't see that happen. It just, it just did. That's was probably the biggest thing that happened in my healing journey is is that and then actually realizing that I'm in that.
1: Going from that trauma response and constantly in that flight mode, I guess, or fight mode, and you don't know how to lay it down. In my opinion, God would have to sneak up on you and start pulling that out. It sounds like you had participation because you said, I'll receive that, I'll take that. He had your permission to then go in and start to extract those kind of things. But real quick, I want to talk about forgiveness. I want to look at it in three places. Were you ever mad at God? That is a good question because I know that I have had
0: words with him <laughs> that probably weren't so nice when I was in the, the midst of the most abuse or whatever. And I did ask him several times, why are you letting me go through this? Can you just either take me out or take my dad? I don't want to be here no more. If that means that you got to." Delete me. <laughs> I guess I can say it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I want out. and But I don't think I ever got to the point where I blamed God for what was happen, happening because God wasn't it did it. I couldn't blame him for what was happening,
1: but I could be kind of angry at him for letting it happen. I know I don't believe that God does things to me that are evil, but I do believe that he allows it and that's what we really have to come to terms with as Christians. I think there's a quote that I've heard and I do not remember who said it, but something along the lines, God allows the things that he hates in order to accomplish what he what he wants in our lives. So how did you come to a place where you forgave God for allowing that?
0: I just think by staying in church, staying connected, with other Christians and stuff and really making that conscious decision to believe God is who he says he is and looking at it that way and not looking at him as somebody bad. Just because my earthly father's bad doesn't mean that my heaven heavenly father's bad. Staying in church, staying in the word is what kept me on track
1: that is helpful when you can find people who will model God well. I think we all misrepresent God at one time or another, but if you can find people who can consistently model well, that's also encouraging and helpful. So the next question would be about forgiveness for your dad, because after the foster care and your father is in jail at this point because he was prosecuted, he was found guilty, you are allowed to go back to the house at some point. How do you get back to the house? Well, when my dad
0: came home, I ended up staying with my grandparents. I got sick and I wanted to go home because when you're back, you want to go to your mom. Yeah. So I ended up going back to stay a couple of nights or whatever. And then I ended up staying home. Um, I didn't end up going back to my grandparents. Um, So once I was there, um, it started off kind of gradual the grooming again and and stuff like that as far as like he would give me corner magazines and stuff like that matter of fact my mom found one one time in my room and busted me <laughs> about it I didn't want it <laughs> but I couldn't just tell her hey right dad gave it to, you know gave it to me to to look at it or read it eventually it just got back to the abuse again but Me being older, obviously, the type of abuse kind of was worse at this point than it was when I was younger.
1: How old were you at this point? 16 and a half. Bringing up the fact that porn was introduced to you, did that cause you to have any sort of porn addiction or porn problems? I wouldn't say that it did, because some of the
0: stuff that he gave me was more literature than it was pictures. It wasn't like videos and stuff like that. And yeah, that just, yeah, it didn't ever become a, an issue.
1: An issue. I could see where it did when you said that. I was like, that could really be an issue for some people. Some oh, young yeah. kids, 16 years old, your hormones are already raging and you're right. being given graphic images and whatnot. So I, I just thought I would ask because I think that's a legitimate result from being exposed to that at a young age. Yeah. My third question about forgiveness is you mentioned that you needed to forgive yourself what did you mean by forgive yourself you are a kid you're not responsible for what was done to you for
0: the majority of that abuse yes I was a kid but I feel like maybe I should have done more when I when I was older maybe I should have spoke up and then just having gone through that the decisions that I made throughout my life, like I've been married twice and been divorced twice. And I feel like I just put myself in some positions that I had I like stepped back and look at it, I wouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. And because I did, I feel like I need to forgive myself for making not so smart decisions. <laughs> I don't want to say dumb because I don't want to call myself dumb, but some of those decisions weren't the best.
1: Can you so. make a connection with the fact that some of those decisions are based on trauma from your childhood? Does that seem reasonable to you?
0: Oh, looking back at it now, yeah. hindsight is twenty twenty. So yeah, you know,
1: older and wiser. My listeners know my whole testimony about leaving my house with more survival skills than relationship skills. And once outside that environment, it does not serve you well. You run into a lot of difficulties in survival mode, but not in the environment anymore. So I've made my share of unwise decisions as well. But, you know, once you are healed and once you can make the connection with those things, and even now some things will still pop up, like I'll get, I'll be in a situation where something, one of those old habits wants to flare up or pop up or what and I've got to remind myself hold on that's old that's done with that's settled that's dealt with but Satan is so slick like that he will still pop things up on you yeah trying to drag you back did your pain cause you to think God had abandoned you at any point yeah and then you just yeah because when
0: you're in that and you're going through that it's like where are you at why are you letting me go through this you know, and the thing is, it's like once you are in that, and you're asking God continuously, over and over and over, you get to a point where it's like, are you even real?
1: Mm-hmm. Are you there? Mm-hmm. Do and, you care? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you this thing, because there's a part of your book where it says you're quite honest and you're frank, you're direct, and you and in saying. The sad fact is many children of abuse will never make it out. You go on to say no one cares enough to help change the situation and others prefer not to get involved. Oftentimes a child is seen as a liar and the family treats them as an outsider.
0: Yeah, that's just going back to mine. It's when my dad ended up going to prison the first time. He's been three times for the same thing, but not not with me each time. It's, I had family members that didn't believe me and they wanted me to go back and recant what I had said. And then I, on the other hand, I had some family members. I didn't know it at the time, but they were there with me when my dad was in court. And I thought I was going to have to go up and testify in court in front of him. And I had one great aunt was back there with me and my mom just sitting with me. And, you know, I learned actually in like the last year or two that due to some other things that I found out (laughs) that had happened with my dad, that she was there because she believed me. She never told me that she believed me, but she did. And I mean, it would have been nice to know. that I had something that was on my side. But, you know, a lot of people just choose to ignore it and not talk about it because it's such a a taboo thing. And who wants to really
1: admit that in their family, I think? Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Especially, you know, when it's like familial incest. I, I think it's harder for people in those situations to talk about it, whereas when you have other sexual abuse stuff when it's somebody that's on the outside it might be i won't necessarily say easier to talk about but it's not something that people necessarily try to
1: hide were you wondering god why won't you make it stop what is a child supposed to think of a good god who will not make the abuse stop i
0: had those questions more when i was a teenager when it happened you know because when i was a little kid i'd I mean, I didn't really think about that stuff too much. You do what you're told, pretty much. Yeah. But but when you're a teenager and you know what's wrong, you really do start to question a lot of things as, as far as God and if he's real and why he's allowing that. And yeah, I, I really struggled with that and suicidal ideation, you know not that I ever really tried to do anything because I knew enough not to do that but it was like I I'm like is that my only recourse is that my only way out is is for me to do that but I never I never got to the point where I would actually try to try to do that
1: why do you think children turn on themselves when something is done to them Is it that they don't have a context to understand where the responsibility truly lies? Some of that is because
0: when I was a teenager and my dad came back, my parents had my sister. So my sister is 15 years younger than me. And I got to the point where it's like when I get out of school, when I leave or if I say anything, what's going to happen to her? If I, if I say something about my dad, my dad's going to go to jail again. My mom's going to be stuck having to provide for me, my brother, and now my sister. And I didn't want to put my mom back through that. And I didn't want to take my dad from my brother again. Obviously, mm-hmm. didn't want my sister going through it. So if it happened to me, I felt like I could keep it from happening to her. As as long as the focus is on
1: me, it's not on her. You're helpless to stop that. There's nothing you can do to stop your father. Yeah. From them. And I don't know if you want to speak to this, but were either of your other siblings affected?
0: My sister was, and my dad ended up going to prison again because of something that he had done to my sister. And again, I got blamed for a lot of that. I I was told that I put her up to saying that, which I did not. That was found out by somebody else and because my sister had written down something in a notebook and a family member of a family member. So they weren't directly my family member, but they're the ones that reported it. And I was the one that was gonna stand by my sister and you know, whatever she needed. And if I needed to testify you know, against my dad about what had happened to me when I was a teenager. I was willing, I was there at the courthouse and I was ready to testify to it. That's why I say I'm, I was the black sheep of the family. They thought that I was putting her up to it and I wasn't.
1: So. It's interesting that they took that stance because it had already been proven in court that he was guilty of what he had done to you and he got put in jail for that. But now it's your fault that he's doing it to somebody else. It just really testifies to the, the amount of resistance that one can run into if they have the courage to speak up. Your book is poised to release on which date? Because I know sometimes the publication date changes. That's just the publishing world.
0: Yeah, it releases on December 20th.
1: December 20th. So at the time of this recording, it's only a few days away. So it'll be available when this audio uh, episode comes out. So definitely go check out her book. But thinking about the resistance you're speaking of, What is it gonna cost you in order to bring this story out into the light?
0: My biggest worry, I guess you can say, is some of my family members exposing a lot of stuff and and them hearing it for the first time. Especially like the when I was a teenager and the stuff that I went through at that point. Because everybody knows what happened when I was six to Nine, ten, that's a known thing. But a lot of people don't know what happened when he came home. Do they know about your sister? Yeah, because my dad went to prison for like three and a half years for that.
1: And your mother and father have passed. Yeah, they
0: passed in 2020.
1: Almost back to back, correct?
0: Two and a half months more.
1: So you've got some family pressure potentially coming down the pipe, if you will, once this is published.
0: Yeah, <laughs> how do you feel about that? Very anxious, especially for one particular person finding out. Um, but you know, I've, I've got to get it in my mind. God wanted me to tell my story to help other people to let them know that there's hope, and I have to I have to go with that. He hasn't scared me wrong yet. I mean, even when I was going through all that mess, even though I felt like he wasn't there, he's been there the whole time. And I've come to the realization that the worlds a fallen place. People are broken. We're all souls. And we have to navigate this life however we do. And we have to react to things that happen to us. Yeah. And it's up to us how we do that. It's me and God all the way, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to stop it now because he's gotten me this far.
1: Yeah, because I do know the enemy will amp it up if he thinks he can shut your mouth and silence your voice. He he has the tendency to turn that kind of pressure up and that kind of anxiety. Yeah. So I'm definitely praying for you. When you look back over this journey of being a six-year-old girl, six to nine, and then, you know, in your teenage years when it returns again, and, and of course, the trauma that that it brings on you that you take outside of the home. When you look back, do you see this gold thread that God wove through your life? Do you see his presence in a consistent manner? How did he show himself faithful?
0: A lot of it was from relationships that I've had and being in church and and being around those people. When you're going through that stuff and you're You're keeping it to yourself. It's it's really lonely because I can't tell anybody. I can't do anything. But when you have your church family and somebody giving you a hug on a Sunday, it's like these people like me (laughs) or these people love me. and, And even though I'm going through this bad stuff, there's still glimmers of goodness in people and
1: hope. It reminds me too, a minute ago, we were talking about sometimes the recovery is hard because you've got to find the right therapist. you got to find the right medication if medication is the the route you need. And then there's also your support system. Sometimes you have to keep looking for a support system. Like you're saying, you found a church. Sometimes you have to go to a few churches. Sometimes you have to change friends and block people and those who aren't going to support you and be there for you, pray for you, speak things over you that bring life and not death. So I think that's even part of the fight as you're you know, coming out of that victim uh, position into that overcomer position. So keep that in mind as well, you know, my listeners, as you're healing and you're looking for that healing in the reflection section at the end of chapter one, because you have the chapter and then you have a reflection section after each one. You closed with knowing how to read the signs and how to ask the questions is key in preventing and or stopping this atrocity learn how you can help, offer solutions. You may be the answer to their prayers. So my question is, aside from social workers, how can the average person gain an understanding of what to look for?
0: I can give one example. When I met my friend Chris at church when I was a teenager, and she didn't realize it at the time, but she's since realized it. (laughs) Back, I would always have some kind of ailment I always hurt I had something going on and I complained about everything I was negative and that's a way of trying to get attention about something maybe it's not the root cause of the issue but it it magnifies like smaller issues like I was a softball player if my knee was hurting it's like, oh my gosh, my knee this is killing me, you know? So you would just kind of over exaggerate things. And if they're always sick, there's things that you can look for that are kind of out of the, the ordinary. But that was a really big one that she's like, man, I didn't realize that was what was going on. It's you're masking what the real issue is by over-exaggerating
1: other ailments or maybe going to take a certain level of relationship with someone to really find out what's going on unless you are a social worker or someone who is trained in that type of uh, analysis so there's investing in somebody investing in the relationship asking some deeper questions
0: and that's usually more with your older kids like your adolescent and your teenagers where where you'll see that stuff whereas younger kids you see them touching them themselves inappropriately. I mean, kids are going to do that anyway, but you have to know when it's an excessive thing or if it's out of the ordinary. And for younger kids, it would be different than what you would see in like a teenager or adolescent. It would be different signs.
1: I know you're progressively putting some resources and things together for people who are going to be looking for your book and uh, going to be looking for you as a resource. I just want to do a real quick it's a nonprofit who once a person mostly women who are extracted from the sex industry from being sex trafficked they will provide you know medical attention they'll provide therapy they they restore them into a, a normal life again and so if somebody's looking for help whether they want to get out of the industry, they they need help from being sex trafficked, experiencing sexual abuse, definitely reach out to Safe House Project, safehouseproject.org. But another reason I mention them is because they have a whole training resource page. And if you go into their the little tab for training, they have resources. And one of them is called On Watch. And it's a short training video that educates you on what human trafficking looks like. Because I remember my husband used to, for many years, he was an inspector for a pest control company, and he would go into other people's homes. And when he found out about what sex trafficking looks like in a home, a personal private home, he's like, oh my gosh, I have seen that. And one of them was a door with a lock on it, like a bolt deadbolt lock on it, and from the outside, not the inside. And so he said, I have seen that. I had no clue that's what I was looking at. So here's this video that can definitely train people uh, to understand what they're seeing, what might be seem odd, but not illegal in somebody's home. When you think about the abuse that you've endured, what are some of the things or one of the things that you had to grieve As you work through the healing process.
0: The first thing that comes to my mind isn't necessarily the the sexual abuse that I went through. When I was writing my book, one of the main things that I grieved over was my first marriage. Which was very short. (laughs) Because I I ended up getting pregnant before I got married. And so I really didn't have like a, a lot of closure from that. When I was writing that part of my book, I was grieving a death, <laughs> pretty much, um, of that relationship. Not necessarily of who we are now as people, but us at that time and all the stuff that we went through. Because there was this one instance that really sticks out in my my mind that when we were being intimate one time, I just, like, started crying and I guess I had like flashback or, or whatever. And he just got up and went in the closet and knocked a hole in the wall. <laughs> he didn't know what to do for me. And so that hindered our relationship, not to mention found out later that he was abusing drugs and stuff. So that was probably one of my my biggest things that I, that I grieved over. I can't really say as far as like the sexual abuse and stuff that I grieved over that because like I said, I've I've had a relationship with my parents my whole life. And I decided to walk in forgiveness and forgive my dad because my mom decided to stay with my dad. And that's really the only family I know. So it's like, am I going to just step back and leave my whole family? That wasn't something that I was going to do at that time. I mean, I don't really know the reason some people might think that I should have but then I wouldn't have walked in the forgiveness the way that I did and I stayed. There.
1: When I think about healing, I think that there is a grieving process, I think there is a a forgiveness aspect and I think that there are choices that you make to say okay, I'm putting this behind me. And I want to make the connection between making peace with what happened to you and choosing not to use it against them.
0: There was no specific point in my life that I'm like, from this day forward, I'm gonna forgive them. It was just kind of like, okay, this is what we have. I'm gonna be around them. I'm gonna keep my distance. (laughs) I'm like, I'm gonna keep you at arm's length, but we're we're still family. And so I never really had this real big aha like this is when I'm forgiving you kind of moment. But there was I think it was Christmas 16, maybe, where my dad told me he wanted to talk to me before I left to come back home. And he made it well, well known that he wanted to make sure that I talked to him before I left. And so it was unreasonably warm that day. And so everybody was outside. They lived beside my, my aunt and my uncle. So everybody was just kind of outside. And he like grabbed me by my hand he's like walk with me so we were like walking on the the road they lived in the country so it's like wide open space out there and he pretty much apologized to me and told me that he knew that what he did was wrong and that he was going to therapy to get help and stuff and asked me what I thought about that and I told him I was happy that he was doing it but I ended up leaving shortly after that and as soon as I sat in the car I told JC I said you'll never believe what just happened she's like what I said daddy apologized to me and I think she was like 14 she's like and how does that make you feel (laughs) I'm like oh now she's a shrink (laughs) but I said actually I said it makes me mad And she's like, mad? I said, yeah, I'm really mad right now. And she's like, why are you mad? I said, because I chose to forgive him because that was my decision to forgive him. But now that he has done this, I have to forgive him. It's like it's no longer my choice. And so I kind of felt like he took control over me again because he did what he did and it was no longer me giving him grace or giving him mercy and saying I forgive you now it's like I have to do it you know so I went that whole week I was mad and then I just woke up one morning and I and I told myself I said you just need to get over yourself it's I'm like he had to do that for him and you really needed to hear that. So you just need to get over yourself. And from that day forward, it's like, I wasn't mad about it anymore.
1: I mean, it, it came and went just, you know, just as quickly. (laughs) Did you have to hash it out with God? Did you have to have this conversation with God? Like, what is this supposed to mean? Or whatever your, whatever that would have looked like for you and God's relationship.
0: It was a lot of internal, internal conversation with myself. I had to go through that and, God just let me do my little things. Like, okay, go through all your little emotions that you need to go through. And
1: in a couple of days, you'll be good. <laughs> do you process verbally, out loud? Talking to yourself, talking to God? Sometimes I do, actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we we have some conversations. So.
1: <laughs> it's interesting that your nature of laying it out in front of you and saying, hey, here are your choices, and I'm going to choose this one, and I'm going with it, and I'm sold out for it. You know, as I read your story, I I just want to say that I am I am so very sorry that evil has invaded your life in this way. And I know that you would never have asked for this type of abuse. And I also know that God meets us in the midst of evil things. Not that he's approving of how someone chooses to use their gift of choice. But that he said he'd never leave you nor forsake you. In what way did God show you the beauty of who he is despite the reality of traumatic abuse
0: just seeing some of the stuff that i went through throughout the years where it's definitely god only god could have done that kind of thing and it's not that any man could have done it it's definitely god i mean i've had several things like that that have happened and even now if i'm sitting here contemplating or trying not to have an existential crisis. (laughs) And I'm like, God, are you even, are you even real? It's like, you'll have this moment of doubt and then you'll flash back and say, God did this for you in this moment. And there's no way that that would have happened had he not stepped in and done it. So, I mean, I see him like in everything. So that's what I try to focus on is just looking for him. And everything.
1: So, the more I hear you talk, your faith in God to be who He says He is, to do what He says He's going to do, in my opinion, is rock solid. Not that you can't have your moments, but it sounds pretty solid. Like He's proven Himself in a way that you can struggle with something for a minute, but you side with the fact of His nature and His character. That's pretty powerful. Absolutely. When I think about Psalm 23 proclaiming that God prepares a table before me, the presence of my enemies. What did that look like for you? In what way has God provided for you? Because you were just talking about there are times when God stepped in and no one but him could have done that. Can you think of an example where he did that for you? What did that look like?
0: I have a great example. Right before I moved here, where I'm at now, some things happened again with my dad and I knew that I had to get away from where I was. Because I didn't want my daughter to go through what I went through. So my friend Chris, uh, I talked to her one night. And I was like, I've got to do something or I'm going to do something illegal. (laughs) I'll just put it that way. I was at that point where I wanted to do something very illegal and very wrong to, to somebody. And she said, move up here with us. And and the way that worked out, when my daughter finished school that year, she came up here and stayed with them for like a month and a half before I was actually able to come up here. So I was putting in for interviews. I'm in another state. So it's like they didn't want to hire me because I was out of state. I wasn't accessible to them when they needed me. And I just got to this one day. It was just a regular day. (laughs) But it got on my nerves. So every little thing that went wrong that day heightened in my my senses. And I told the girl that was working with me, I said, I'm putting in my two weeks today. And she's like, you are? I said, yep, I'm putting in my two weeks. And at this point, I didn't have a job. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. But I knew I didn't want to stay there no more. I think. When God's getting ready to do, to do a big move in your life, you get discontent with everything. I was discontent with work, <laughs> church, <laughs> home life, everything. I was not in a good place. I'm I'm over it, and so I wrote up my resignation letter, took it, put it on my manager's desk, and I told her. I said, "I'm putting in my my well, two weeks," and she's like, "Are you sure?" And she she knew pretty much what was going on as far as me moving and stuff because I would go in her office every day and read her devotional oh. and she says what I'm gonna do I'm gonna take it I'm gonna put it on the edge of my desk she said I'm gonna leave it right here I'm not gonna do anything with it you come in in the morning and you've changed your mind just take it off my desk I said I appreciate that but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take it off your desk I've made up my mind um Putting
1: in my two weeks. If she only knew how, when you make up your mind, you've made up your mind.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) So I knew I had two days worth PTO time. So my last day was July 31st. It was on a Wednesday. So that gave me two days of PTO. So I drove to Chris's and for the next two days, I did nothing but stay on the computer, putting out resumes and stuff. And Monday, I had an interview from the doctor's office, probably about an hour or two after I got home, I got a call from that doctor's office. And they're like, we really like you and we want to offer you the job. Are you interested? And when could you start? I said, what time do you open up in the morning? I miss one day of work. One day. One day. and And I had been trying for months to get a job here. But it took me stepping out on faith, turning in my resignation and saying, I'm done and actually taking the step to get here. And I missed one day of work.
1: One day. One day. So and God I'm,
0: provides. Yes. And I'm like, there. that was nothing but God. Yeah. And I'll stand on that till the day I die.
1: Yeah, because you can't organize things like that. Oh, no. That's favor. That's doors opening. That's you being seen. Because even then, it might be one thing now at COVID when people are desperate to find employees who will actually show up for work. But back at that time, several years ago, we definitely had to be interviewed. You had to show up dressed nice. You had to be working in the place. You couldn't work online. So there was a lot of requirements. There were a lot of things that you had to prove before you could even get the job offer. Yeah, Our time has run out. So let me just wrap up with, is there anything that I haven't asked you about your book or your story or anything that you want to share that I have inadvertently left out?
0: I just want to make sure that people who have been through that know that there's hope. I think that's, that's my main focus on this is that Jesus is there. As bad as it is, there is light. Sometimes you just got to dig for it, but it's well worth it.
1: I think the harder the fight, the bigger the message that you have to heal others, meaning Satan wouldn't work so hard to shut you up if it wasn't a priceless testimony that is going to bring great healing and great glory to God. I'm like you, stay the course, stay in there. When you say that Jesus makes the difference, how does Jesus make a difference?
0: I've just kind of always had that from the time I was a kid. I just knew who Jesus was. And I've always kept that close to me. Mm-hmm. Even even when I wasn't doing stuff like I was supposed to do, it's like I always, there is a God, there's Jesus died for me. And I would always go back to that. I'd, I'd always remember what I learned in my childhood. I think it's different for everybody. They have to find their own relationship with God. But I just know that he's been there with me the whole time.
1: Tina, it has been a pleasure talking with you and hearing more about your story. I would encourage people to buy your book because I I believe that their heart is going to be encouraged to not only see the goodness of God, despite the brokenness of man, You're clearly a testimony for God's healing. So thank you for coming here today and sharing your story with me. I appreciate it. Thank
0: you so much for having me.